my short-term mission in New York to uh, visit Calvary Bible Chapel at a picnic, and I heard that uh, Bill McDonald laid the line in the sand, and uh, he said that whoever memorized Psalm 119 would get a hundred dollars. And uh, you know, when you're a student, that's a lot of money. <laughs> So that was an encouragement to me, and I know a number of other people did it, memorized it. So I'm glad that that vision stuck, and uh, Paul picked up the challenge, and, you know, the gantlet is thrown. Anybody else that wants to memorize Psalm 119 or any other portion of Scripture, of course, is, uh, you know, we'd love to hear you uh, recite verses. So we have a little bit of time left for the message today. And I promise I won't keep you uh, uh, too, too late. Let me grab my notes. That'll help me. But uh, we've been uh, studying First John. So turn, if you would, to First John. We'll finish up chapter 4, and we'll get a start on chapter 5 today. Uh, but first, I have a picture here. If it made it through, I know we've, we've had uh, kind of a busy day for our... Uh, Technical experts. Uh, can anybody tell me what's happening there? Sorry? A lie detector. Very good. Yeah, that's uh, a person who's being asked some questions. You can tell he's looking a little bit nervous there. And uh, the reason is he's hooked up to a, a machine that is uh, considered a lie detector. Does anybody know how lie detectors work? What is it that they're really trying to sense? Yes, Jake? Right. Right, good, very good. There's a verse in the Bible, it says this, Proverbs 28.1, The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as lion. If somebody asks you a question and you answer truthfully, usually it doesn't stress you out. But if somebody is asking you a question and you're lying with your answer, right, there's fear or the stress that that should be developing in you. That's scriptural. So that's, that's all that machine is trying to do. It's trying to detect fear or stress in a person as they're asking you questions, and if it detects it, it suggests that you might be lying. Well, why am I starting with that? Well, we're, we've been studying the tests of life in a believer, and uh, the test of life today will have to do with fear or perhaps boldness. Fear, uh, if you're not a child of God. Boldness, if you are a child of God. So First John chapter 4 and verse 17. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love, we love him because he first loved us. So first we see here, we are reminded of the fact love has been perfected in us. And if you wonder what that's talking about, in 1 John 4.12 we, we read, No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love has been perfected in us. What does it mean that God's love has been perfected in us, it says here it it uh, it means that we love one another. And there's uh, two bodies of water in the land of Israel. One is up north. It's known as the 
Sea of Galilee, and then there's one in the south, and it is known as the Dead Sea. And uh, you may wonder, why is one live, right? The Sea of Galilee is full of fish, that's where the disciples were fishing. And then there's one that's dead. You wouldn't go fishing in the Dead Sea, because there's nothing to catch there. And the reason for it is the Sea of Galilee has an inflow and an outflow. Water is coming up from Mount Hermon, and then water is, is going out. The Dead Sea has no outlet. So water pours in from the, the uh, Sea of Galilee, the Jordan flows on and ends up in the Dead Sea, but it has no outlet. And for the health of the water, you must have an outlet for your lake or body of water. Otherwise, it becomes salty and it's not worthy of life. And that's the way God's love is with us. If God's love is perfected in us, there is an outflow. God's love comes in and it goes out in me loving you guys. If God's love is not coming out of me toward you guys, God's love is not perfected. There's a problem. right? Some, something hasn't happened here that ought to happen here if I don't love you guys. Now, it says that love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Now, the day of judgment is described for us in uh, Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead small and great, standing before God. And books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. I grew up um, in an atheistic, secular environment. I did not fear God. I wasn't concerned about my sin, generally speaking. I had no expectation of a day of judgment. But a day of judgment is coming when each of us will stand before God and we will have to give an account to him of our lives. And it was only when that dawned on me for the first time in my life that I feared because of my sin. When I realized one day I would have to stand before God, all of a sudden I was afraid of what would happen to me. And it was at that moment that the grace of God in sending Jesus into this world was finally understood by me. I understood that Jesus went and died on the cross for my sins so that I will not have to suffer the wrath of God against my sins. And that changed it. But to a person who doesn't know that, there ought to be a fear of the day of judgment. If people were rational who are walking in their sins today, they would be fearful of meeting God. But not so for believers, right? It says that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. God doesn't want us to be afraid of the day of judgment. In fact, Jesus said it to the disciples in John 14, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That's where I am. There you may be also. Jesus doesn't want you to be troubled in your heart about the day of judgment. He wants you to have confidence that you will be 
with him. And uh, that's where it comes to saying, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. We appreciate, we understand just how much it is that Jesus loves us. And as we are thinking about the future day, we're not concerned about a day of judgment where we will be judged for our sins. We're thinking about being with him because he promised that we will be with him. Instead of needing to be concerned in facing the wrath of God for my sins, I have an expectation of joy of being in heaven with the Lord Jesus. The, uh, Jesus said it, the ap- apostles said it. This is Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5, 8-11. But let us who are of the day, believers, be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. <clears throat> For those of you who are familiar with Ephesians 6, he talks about the... Uh, armor of God. The armor we need to live, to live the life God wants us to live here. And there too it talks about the helmet of salvation. And what that is talking about is this confidence that we have that, you know, worse comes to worse, you know, people might kill me. Well, that's fine. I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. Right? There should be a peace in our heart. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Again, the hope of the believer is that we will be with Christ. Now, Paul didn't just preach this truth, he lived it. (laughs) In uh, Philippians chapter 1, Paul is writing this from jail as he awaits his trial by Caesar, and Caesar will decide whether to chop Paul's head off or not. And Paul is struggling, but not the way you would think somebody whose you know, head is about to go on the chopping block would struggle. He says this in Philippians 1, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit for my labor. Yet, what shall I choose? I cannot tell. He can't decide what he wants Caesar to say. You know, whether Caesar will do this or this. He's not sure. For I am hard pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Right? For a believer, there is no fear of, of the day of judgment. There is a desire to be with Christ. And that's why John says, <coughs> back to 1 John, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, before, because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. There's a problem. If a person is concerned about the day of judgment where he will have to stand before God and give an account for his sin, there's a problem. You know, you missed something. Right? That's not the way a believer should be. For a believer, there's the joyous expectation of being with Christ. Fine. You know, to depart and be with him is far better. Not fear of that day of judgment. We'll pick up in verse 20 of 1 John 4. Now, Paul will be turning on the heat a little bit, and I understand that's something that they will often do in this uh, polygraph test uh, as they give it. You know, the person who asks you is not always going to be really nice and soft as they're asking you a question. They're going to, you know, be there and looking at this, you know, where were you on that night? You know, that can't be true. This is the information I'm looking at. There's something wrong in some... I mean, they're, they're trying to stimulate fear because they want to see the evidence. You know, are you lying or are you telling the truth? 
And uh, so Paul is doing it a little bit. He's turning on the heat a little bit in verse 20. If someone says, I love God and hate his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love God does not love his brother, I'm sorry, whom he has seen. How can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him that he who loves God must love his brother also. I don't know about you, but uh, sometime I'll try to share a little bit of Christ with someone, witness, and, uh, you know, you start with some casual conversation, and uh, eventually you try to talk about God, and they'll say, oh yeah, God, you know, I love God. And, you know, you feel like you've just come to this dead end in this conversation, because there's plenty of evidence from the life of this person that this person doesn't really love God, doesn't, but you can't, you know, it's something people say, and, uh, you know, we feel we can't violate their space. They say they love God, and how can I see their heart? But uh, John is very bold here, and he says, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. I mean, that's, that's the Bible's word, not mine. <laughs> and it goes on to say, if he who does not, uh, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? Let's turn to Matthew 25, because I think that helps a little bit understand what does seeing have to do, uh, seeing, you, know, the, you know, loving my brother whom I have seen versus God whom I have not seen. What does that have to do with evidence of loving God? And maybe this will clarify to us. So Matthew chapter 25 and verse 31 This is uh, known as the judgment of the nations. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit, sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered to him, and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from his goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So Jesus is, is separating the nation, and some of them are going to inherit the kingdom of God. And he's now saying why. Why is it that they're going to uh, inherit the kingdom of God? And Jesus explains it starting verse 35. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in? Or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? 
Now, you understand the question that they have. Jesus just said, you're inheriting the kingdom because of all these wonderful things you did for me. And they're confused. Lord, we never saw you. When did we do these things that you're talking about? And this is Jesus' answer to them. And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, Inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. What Jesus is saying is, every time you are showing kindness to one of his brethren, and who are his brethren? Those who are Christians, the saved, those who have trusted in him. They've become children of God, and by virtue of that, they're the brothers of the Lord Jesus, and Jesus is saying, inasmuch as you've done it to one of these little ones, you have done it unto me. Now, if uh, I have a brother, and let's say I would call you tomorrow and say, you know, my brother is coming to town. I'm not going to be there to greet him. Would you be willing to uh, pick him up from the airport, take him to your house, and uh, just take care of him from the night, and then give him a ride to the bar station he has a you know, important business meeting in each certain. Would you do that for me, Howard? <laughs> now, you know, let's say, you know, Howard uh, will do that. He'll take my, pick my brother up, take good care of him, and do all these things. Why did you do it, Howard? Did you love my brother? <laughs> Howard is not doing it for my brother. He's doing it for me, right? Because Howard loves me, so much, he's willing to take care of my brother. It's the same thing. When I show love to my brother in Christ, you know, it may not be because my brother is such a wonderful person. But I do it because I love Christ. And he is Christ's brother. And when I do something for him, Christ take it as if it was done for himself. So if I want to show love to Jesus, whom I cannot see, I don't see. How can I, how can I do something for Jesus? Well, I do something for one of these here, his brethren. Right. So how do I know that I love God? How can you tell? Well, when I show love to a, a fellow believer, I am showing love to Christ. Right. If I'm not showing love, we won't go through the rest of it for uh, the sake of time. But... Uh, those who did not do so, Jesus says, did not show love to me. Right. Okay, turning on the heat a little bit more, back to 1 John chapter 5. Whoever believes that Jesus is the, the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. So we might say, well, okay, I recognize I have to show love to the brethren. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, I'll have you my select group. You know, you are the believers I love hanging out with. And I'm fulfilling Jesus' command and I'm pleasing Jesus by loving you guys. The rest of you, well, you know, you know, we don't, we don't see eye to eye quite as well, so I won't, I won't love you. But it's okay because I love these guys over here. <laughs> well, what does it say? 
It says, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. I have to include this side of the room too. And everyone who loves him who begot also love him who is begotten of him. We can't be picky about which believer we love. We have to love all believers. Okay. Good thing, okay on time. Let's finish up with this last couple of verses. Chapter 4. And this is the key for victory. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? I understand that uh, this is a quote that uh, was uh, life-changing for Bill McDonald. Most of you here, of course, know Bill McDonald. Uh, if I remember the story correctly, he read uh, about the life of C.T. Studd when he was in the Navy, I think during World War II. And uh, C.T. Studd had this uh, life verse that said, we uh, get it up there? All right, I'll read it. If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. Now, we all know that Jesus died on the cross. That's something that the world doesn't debate. What the world often debates and what we often don't appreciate is just who Jesus was. And that's why City Stad is saying it in this way. If Jesus Christ be God, think about it. You know, stop and think. The very creator of this universe came down into this world, was born as a baby, lived a life of impeccable righteousness. And at the end of that life of impeccable righteousness, he stretched his hands on a piece of wood and allowed someone to drive nails through his hands and his feet to keep him there and then lifted him up on it. And there he hung between heaven and earth, suffering not only at the hands of men, but also at the hands of God his Father. You have to ask yourself the question, why? Why did Jesus do that? And the only answer that Scripture will give you is he did it for me. And he did it for you. And if you stop and you think of it, then you have to agree with City Stad, which I understand was what Bill did as he was reading it, which changed his life forever. You realize that no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. Including loving you guys. It shouldn't be too hard. <laughs> you know, if Jesus was willing to do so much for me, if the very God of creation was willing to give his lifeblood for me, is it too hard for me to give you a cup of water, a ride, a visit, whatever it takes to help you out? It should not be too much. Let me finish by reading this hymn which uh, I didn't know uh, while I knew Bill here on earth. 
that he tried his hand at writing hymns. Apparently, he was also a hymn writer, or at least he tried his hand at a few hymns. And this is one that he wrote, which he called The Wonder of It All. I never want to lose the sense of wonder that he who held the highest place above should come to earth in lowly condescension to show this fallen world that God is love. I never want to cease from adoration when I recall that day at Calvary when God the Son, the mighty maker, suffered to rescue me from sin's dread penalty. I never want to lose the expectation that my dear Lord is coming back for me, that I will see him radiant in his beauty, be with him and like him for eternity. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we uh, confess that uh, no love is like your love. I think of uh, the words of uh, that rebel who said, Thou hast conquered, thou pale Galilean, and recognizing that your love has conquered this world like nothing else ever did. And uh, this conquering of our hearts, we know, Lord, is demonstrated in the changed lives you produce in believers, including this marked love that they have for one another. Lord, we desire the same for us, that this great accomplishment you worked in the ancient world, you'll work again today in giving the saints love for one another that will truly testify that they are your disciples. Pray, um, thank you for the opportunity we had to, to hear your word and be blessed by it. Pray that as we go, we might go out with your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.